This is TV8 My Dinner, a podcast about entertainment issues brought to you by DarkCrazy.com. Since before you were even born, I was finding these people and locking them away so they couldn't hurt anybody. Because they will kill and they will terrorize and they will cause unimaginable destruction to the world. They're villains. TV8 My Dinner. This is where evil will change all their destinies. One hero meets his match. No one is safe. I'm starting to wonder if I'm even human anymore. Something could go wrong, and it changes everything. Good will battle evil. Choose a side. Yeah, this part, no one. I make them pay for what they've done. Listening to TV Ate My Dinner. My name is Sean. I am returning again with Johnny. How's it going? We're here to talk to you about some heroes and villains or cover heroism and villainy as, as best we can. So I think last week we left it off where we kind of. I don't know where we left <laughs> off. <laughs> We've kind of just been all over the There's place. A lot we talked about. <laughs> so we'll just jump right on in and see what we can what we can cover tonight. What were we talking about? Roger Corman. That's we were talking about Roger Corman for some reason. Well, what's he been up to lately? I know we I know we did a movie a few years back with Tracy Lords, but I never saw it though. Uh, the last thing I saw that Roger Corman directed was Frankenstein Unbound, I think, which is cool. We may discuss that a little bit in our upcoming Frankenstein episode, but I haven't read the book yet, so who knows. The, act, the actual Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Yeah, but they actually did Frankenstein Unbound is a different book. And he did a, a movie adaptation of that book. And it's actually a decent movie. I, I haven't read the book, so I can't compare it, but I really liked the movie. It's got like John Hurt and Raul Julia in it. Wow. Raul Julia plays Dr. Frankenstein. But it's kind of this interesting take on Frankenstein where John Hurd is this scientist in the future and he creates something that has like time ripples and it's tearing the world apart. And somehow through that, he ends up accidentally traveling back to Mary Shelley's time and meets the actual like Dr. Frankenstein and meets Mary Shelley and all this kind of stuff. But it's kind of neat. It sounds it's, familiar. it's a pretty neat little movie. That sounds really familiar, like something I may have seen. It. I mean, it has to be old if it has Raul Julia in it. I'm going to say it was like late 80s, so it's been around for a while. Yeah, I'll check that out. But I didn't realize that that was a, a book. Yeah, and I keep meaning, I have a long reading list thanks to this show, so 
I'm still trying to get through I Am Legend since we talked about it so much. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that book. It's a good book. It's it's kind of making me mad that there have not been any good movies. Although the Vincent Price one seems so far the clo- to be the closest. Yeah, that's to my the favorite book, which is funny because it's the first one, it's first adaptation of the book. The Omega Man just seemed really corny. Well, it is because you got Heston, you know, and he's so macho in it, and he's just driving around shooting at everything. <laughs> you don't really get that sort of that that vulnerability. Vincent Price really brings that that vulnerability to the character. And the story overall seems the closest to what you find in the book. This whole idea. There's a very scary idea to the fact that, you know, your friends have become monsters and they keep coming back to your house looking for you, you know, that they can talk. That's that's even creepier. <laughs> like in, in Omega Man, they were lucid enough that they just came off as like cult crazies. And that wasn't as interesting. And in the Will Smith one, I mean, there's, there's very little similarity to the book at all. Yeah, that one made me angry. And they come off as zombies, which I get a lot of flack for, but they clearly that's what they're they're making them like zombies and not vampires. Well, I didn't care for the uh I I just Warner Brothers and Universal, they have this crutch of using CG CGI when they really don't need to. And I, I'm legend, I didn't think they really needed to. I think that they have figured out that the difference between a PG or PG-13 and an R is the use of CG. And I think that they make these things that are horror-esque, but they do all the effects with CG, and somehow they end up getting a non-R rating. It does and that's make sense. what they bank on. Because look at movies like The Mummy. Yeah, Same. and I think that's what they're banking on. And it's like, you know, it, I don't like these horror movies that aren't R-rated. You can't say, oh, I Am Legend is in a horror movie, because it's like, it's got zombies in it, man. <laughs> so I don't know what genre you think you're falling into, but you know that's just going in halfway. And I think the audience, I think the box office supports me on this because those movies don't tend to make the kind of money they want them to make because they're 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 you know they're straddling the fence there. Well, that makes uh, perfect sense, though. I mean, I think a movie like I Am Legend, I think it was sold to a different kind of audience too. Well, they're trying to make it a mainstream kind of thing. And that's where you have, like, it's a bleak existence, and I'm the last man on Earth, but I'm, like, driving a Maserati through Times Square, shooting at deer, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think, mean, come on. Like, because, you know, being the last man on Earth could be pretty fun, too. Like, stupid. <laughs> and now that that's a terrible movie, I mean, if you watch it by your, by itself, it's an okay movie. Like it has, and, and, and it's trying to promote a decent idea, but it's so far removed from the original concept. And it's so far removed from what I would call a plausible concept that I have a hard time supporting that that particular version, being the only one that actually uses the, the name of the book, especially. Yeah, and his character was really careless, too. Oh God! I would oh the, the, he takes his dog out with him and they I, I just could slap him. Well, and that was just you know they added that for dramatic effect and that was one of the least you know that part just really bothered me. Well, you just knew it was coming. You know, in, in the book is the opposite where you know he's alone for so long and he finally discovers a dog and it's like this amazing thing 
Whereas in the movie, he already has a dog, and you're thinking the whole time, oh, that dog's going to get bit. Because he says, he says the dog is a, is not immune to the bite. Like, how, he like, he would even know. The diagnostics say that the dog can withstand the vampire bite. Yeah, who would even, I mean, you can tell that the dog is immune to the airborne pathogen because it hasn't gone zombie, but how would you even begin to know that it wasn't, that it was not immune to bite? To be able to say that in the narration, just to let us know that it was going to get bitten. Because that's the only reason to say that in the narration, is to let us know, like, oh, by the way, dog dies. Don't get attached to the dog, audience. Plus, I knew you could. I, I knew watching those flashbacks that his family was gonna die. I knew, I knew that wasn't gonna work out. <laughs> so everything, like point for point, was predictable, and no, and none of it was like the, the 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 last man on earth. The Vince Price film, the Vincent Price film, was was very close to the book as far as how the outbreak started and what happened to everybody, and how he was dealing with it. The book is is full of a lot of you know disturbing sexual references because he's dealing with the fact that, that he hasn't had a woman and then there are all these vampire women coming up <laughs> to his house all, every night and it's making him a little crazy and, and that that makes the book kind of scary because he keeps talking about you know every time I go round up a vampire do experiments I don't know why I insist on getting a woman <laughs> it's like it's, it's kind of depraved and weird but you can sort of buy into, you know, that the guy is sort of losing it. I'm just confused after three attempts why they haven't followed the book. Or, you know, the book at legend. some point should be used as a uh, as a source material. Like why they would never think, you know, hey, you know, someone wrote this once already. You know, I'm just saying it would save us trouble, right? <laughs> I mean, we might be overthinking this. It's already half written. Really, it's just a matter of format. I'll never understand that about adaptations. I understand people wanting to put their own spin on things, and I'm even for it. I don't care. Not everything translates directly into a movie. You might need to do something with it. But why say, I'm going to make a movie of I Am Legend and just do nothing like the book? Like, that's really just like the studio green lights a project, and then the director and writer decide they want to make something else. That's really what happens there. Because you cannot say that you have in any way adapted that book. Well, Frankenstein is that way. There have been like a hundred Frankenstein movies. And none of them are like the book. I mean, they are in elements, but there's not one true adaptation of the Frankenstein book. In all those movies. I think they've done a pretty good job with the uh, Dracula movies. I mean, most of them. <laughs> there have been some really bad ones. I mean, I, I enjoy the Hammer Dracula films, even though they got kind of <laughs> corny. But I love Christopher I'll, Lee, so that's. I'll have to read Dracula. I have not actually read the book Dracula, although I'm not as big a fan of Dracula as I am Frankenstein. Those are both two really good villains. These are timeless. Oh, definitely, you know. I think actually Frankenstein is is a difficult villain, like to understand for people because. The monster, people always try to make sympathetic, where in the book he is not, really. He is sympathetic in that you feel sorry for his circumstances, but he almost always and almost immediately does the most heinous thing you could imagine, right off the bat. That's what I like about the monsters. Like, they're not trying to create an ambiguity there. 
The ambiguity is whether or not Dr. Frankenstein is a hero or villain. That's what's interesting in the book, is could you, would you call Dr. Frankenstein heroic or villainous in his actions? That's the ambiguity. The monster is clearly a monster. Yeah, I don't know where I would sit on that. I think, uh, I think I would lean toward villain for Dr. Frankenstein. I could definitely see that. Just because none of his intentions or actions are selfless. He's always doing whatever he wants to do. And then usually his reactions, even when people he knows are in danger, they're not selfless. So that'll be interesting. That'll be a good fodder for the Frankenstein episode when we do that. But I really think there's a lot going on there as far as as the doctor being at least as much a villain as the monster. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a fine line there. I think, whoa, I mean, the monster becomes a villain, but you know, at some point, you know, he wouldn't even be in existence if it weren't for the doctor. Yeah. That he is a representation of Dr. Frankenstein. Dr. Frankenstein made him. And, and it's, it's fairly cruel in the book because he does instantly abandon the creature. So the creature is almost sympathetic in the sense that he has very little opportunity to even be to learn right for wrong or do, you know, to become anything other than, than just an abomination. I, I think Frankenstein as a monster is more interesting than vampires. I think Frank's, Frankenstein as a character is more interesting than Dracula because I, I think that there's something everyone can sort of get behind on the concept of Frankenstein because basically he's just a a freak and whatever to whatever degree everyone understands that idea whereas Dracula kind of has everything going for him and he's a jerk and nobody can really you know we can't really support that <laughs> he's more of an a-hole yeah you like you got a big castle you're rich you know you like you have like hypnotic powers to make chicks dig you and stuff Frankenstein didn't have any of that you know there's Wanders no reason the why you <laughs> Yeah, you. Yeah, he had to live in a hole somewhere. Every time he walked out to say hello to someone, they took a shot at him. You know, he didn't have very many opportunities. Whereas Dracula, Dracula's sort of like Doctor Frankenstein. It's like, what are you crying about? You have all this stuff. I don't have a castle, <laughs> so I don't see it. You know, on the villains list, I think a villain that had a lot of potential, and I'm really disappointed that we didn't see anything further than this movie was Mr. Glass from Unbreakable. I think Unbreakable is a is a pretty underrated movie in general. Because, you know, everybody loves Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense is a great movie. But then Unbreakable comes out right after it and he really takes the concept of comic books and does something different with it, you know, and really says, you know, what if that kind of thing could happen? You know, what it would it be like? And, and in Mr. Glass, he created this archetypal sort of villain, just like he tried to create, you know, an archetypal hero in, in Bruce Willis's character, where, you know, you have the one who cannot be destroyed and you have the one who just, I mean, can barely get up without hurt breaking himself. And, and I really think you that's a great concept. And what makes that cool is that that's a sort of subtle twist at the end of Unbreakable that you're like, why didn't I see that coming? Because they're opposites. You know, the whole concept is they're opposites. Why wouldn't you see him as becoming the villain? 
Mr. Glass pushed so hard the whole superhero concept, the whole movie too. You know, it's it's right there that whole time, and still, it's just hard to spot. Yeah, this idea that he could validate himself becoming villainous if, in his acts, he brought about a a, a hero, like he could actually was the one who discovered and inspired the superhero. Then it was okay everything he did. It was. I I'm really annoyed that people don't like that movie more than they do because that's just a really good movie. Oh, and I meet a lot of them, too. A lot of people I know won't even watch it because they think it's kind of boring. I just don't get it. You know, I love that movie. I thought Science was good. I, the Shyamalan lost me when you did The Village. But everything yeah. up till then I thought was a good movie. The Village was just... They, they lead you into this movie with almost like a horror theme, and then after the first 30 minutes, you're just kind of... You're sitting there in awe as to what's going on because you realize that it's just this whole hell? charade that the whole village is putting on. But it's a it's a charade that he put on as well. I mean, none of the subtlety of the like when you have a twist that you can go watch the movie later and go, I don't understand why I didn't see that coming. That's a good twist. But you know, he deliberately misdirected us in the way that he made that movie to the point where we couldn't. We didn't see that twist. It wasn't there for us to see. So it wasn't a fair twist, and it was stupid. Yeah, it was hard to get on board with that idea. Yeah, it wasn't a plausible concept, and then it just kept getting worse. And you're like, so you guys are pretending it's like the 1800s, and you have rubber suits locked away where you dress up like monsters to keep people from leaving? And it's I like don't understand <laughs> why, because I mean, we had this talk a little bit on the show before, but it's like these kids were born here. You could have told them anything in the universe. They have no concept of the modern world. There is no reason for you to pretend it's any year other than it is because they wouldn't know the year 2000 from the year 500. So there's no point in pretending there's, it's not like you have a bunch of history books that you're teaching them from, you know? Well, and M. Night Shyamalan also used to cheat by having it be a blind girl that was kind of their, uh, I don't know, it seemed like they were using her to basically carry out everything they needed to happen. Yeah. They sent her off into the woods. <laughs> yeah, I really think that, the, and and then you can't really get behind that little society anyway. It's like, Really? You're sending her off into the... I mean, you know there's not monsters, but still, you're sending the blind girl off into the woods to go find the modern world she doesn't know exists. It's like, you guys are just a bunch of cowardly assholes. Well, and she ends up killing Adrian Brody, too, doesn't she? Yeah, because he comes at her with a rubber suit on. Like, that's another one of those, like, those little mild paradigm shifts that are supposed to sort of misdirect you where when you're convinced like, Oh yeah, there's not monsters. And then he shows up in the suit and you're like, Whoa, are there monsters? Like, no, it's the crazy dressed in a monster suit. It's like, well, first of all, why would he need to dress in a monster suit to attack a blind girl? And second, why do they have monster suits? Oh, they're the ridiculous act too. In the modern world was to actually get like rubber suits made up. Oh, like oh my God! We shouldn't have gotten started on that. that well, was society was probably happy to see him leaving. <laughs> exactly. Let us make you a bunch of suits, weirdos. 
Well, that's what made it even worse, where he Shyamalan actually shows up and he starts telling people, you know, that's why planes won't fly over. It's like, why would they care if a plane flies over? The kids that are born into that society have no idea what the hell a plane is. <laughs> you yeah. can tell them anything. You could tell them planes exist. It just yeah. made no... Oh, my God, what a terrible movie. Yeah, I walked no, away I'll, from that movie with a bad taste. I'll hear no arguments for The Village. For like there, there's for other Shyamalan movies, maybe, but although the only one he's made since then that is decent to me is Lady in the Water, and I still have some problems with it. But I could watch Lady in the Water, and I could watch The Happening. I could watch anything, but just not The Village again. I had a hard time getting through the happening. That was that was a very, very that <laughs> the movie was a little tedious too. <laughs> like I seriously sat there for about ninety minutes in the theater, and I honestly, I kept looking over at my girlfriend and asking, "When's something going to happen in this movie?" It just what's it, happening <laughs> for a movie called The Happening? That's exactly why they titled it's a, it that. The ironically titled. <laughs> Like, actually, nothing happens. They kind of just walk around in the woods saying how trees are the problem. It's like, why are they in the woods the whole time? I didn't say it made sense, man. <laughs> it took 90 minutes to basically give us a uh, public service announcement. The happening was a point-for-point point redo of signs, because it was the same thing where you have this external threat that sort of inspires this sort of internal character drama that culminates in this this sort of ambiguous anticlimax where right when you think everything's going wrong then for no reason they're like nope and then it was fine like really at least in science they got to razzle a, a alien with a with a baseball bat but in the happening, it was just trees doing it. So like, I guess the trees don't want to kill us anymore. They want to kill the French. Well, and that ending was kind of a kick in the butt, too, for the happening. I mean, that movie, at the very end when they show the same thing happen. Was it in France at the end? I think it was France. Yeah, that just... <laughs> I did not like that. Well, I didn't like, you know... It even ends, the science, science did the same thing where they turn on the radio or the TV and someone's explaining what happened so that, you know, just in case we're too stupid to understand, they actually have someone come in and go, no, what it was with this, that the aliens are afraid of water, that's why they came to Earth, because there's almost no water here. It's like, that doesn't make, what kind of, I mean, how would... I mean, if water hurts them, how would human beings even be a good product for them? You know, we are ourselves almost all water in our composition. So even as a food source, you couldn't eat us if you can't take water in. And if you can't use us for slave labor, if we require water to live, you're going to take us somewhere where there must not be any water because water kills you. That doesn't. I don't understand what what good we'd be to just do a raid on Earth to steal people. Well, it's kind of kind of sad to uh, recap something you just saw, <laughs> too. I mean, 
They just you just saw that happen, and then they have to tell you at the very end what just happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It's the recap to, to for the stupid people. Wait, what is this? I think it was trees trying to kill people. Like, what? do you think? I mean, maybe it's it's. I guess it's plausible that I fell asleep through the movie. But <laughs> if you really think I was sleeping through the whole movie, then maybe the explanation is still not necessary. I don't know what happened, but he just kind of lost it. I don't know what happened with Shyamalan. He was so clever and spot on at first, and now he's doing a kids movie. Maybe that's best, isn't it? From some kind of anime, something. Yeah, it was. It was actually called Avatar. It was called Avatar: The Last Airbender. Yeah, Airbender. That's what. But yeah, uh, I've seen that James Cameron tried to sue him over the name Avatar. So, but I guess I guess James Cameron's had this in the works for a long time because he had that name. I guess I don't know if it's what trademarked. He had it copywritten or something years ago. Well, supposedly he developed the concept of Avatar, the movie, a long time ago, years and years ago. And and this is this will always tell you, not, not, Avatar turned out to be an okay movie, but this is usually a bad sign when somebody says, I came up with this idea and the special effects weren't ready yet. Because like, so, that means you basically wrote a big special effects something and the story is not important. Because that was Lucas's thing with the new Star Wars movies. It's like, oh, we've had these written forever, and we're just waiting for the special effects to catch up. It's like, that wasn't the problem. That just means you had 15 years of rewrites that you could have been doing and wasted. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were, special effects aside, they were nowhere near as good as any of the other Star Wars movies. Oh, yeah. We were, uh, they've, they've posted it on the forum now in the movie section, but, uh, but Brooks was also telling me about this, but there's a guy that did, like, it's it's seven parts long and they're all about ten minutes and and he did just a an, a full on review of just the Phantom Menace <laughs> and he does it like point for point as far as where the story went wrong what it's about and it's fairly and he's doing it cheeky and he does a lot of funny stuff with it too but the, a lot of the points are are are, are very lucid. Let's start a movie making one on one, shall we? You see, in most movies, the audience needs a character to connect with. Typically, this character is something called a protagonist. When you're in a weird movie with like aliens and monsters and weirdos, the audience really needs someone who's like a normal person like them to guide them through the story. Now this of course doesn't apply to every movie, but it works best in the sci-fi, superhero, action, and fantasy genres. I picked a few examples to illustrate this point. Marty McFly, John McClane, Billy Peltzer, Sarah Connor, Neo, Charlie Bucket, Peter Parker, Cliff Secord, Johnny Rico, Rocky Balboa, and Kevin Bacon. And the very first point that he brings up, which which I think is by itself the one that, that is an eye-opener, which is, who is the protagonist of Phantom Menace? And it's like, you never think about it, and then when he says that, you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Like, who would you consider to be the main character? Because they're all running around doing different things, but none of them has that role. I want you to tell me who the main character of the Phantom Menace was. I can tell you it's not the Jedi. 
they were just on some kind of boring mission that they didn't really care about. It wasn't Queen Amidala, because she was some foreign queen the movie was certainly not really about specifically either. You might be thinking that it's Anakin, because he was like a slave and saved the day at the end by accidentally blowing up the starship. But the audience doesn't meet Annika until 45 minutes into the movie. And then the things that are happening around him are pretty much out of his control or understanding. If a protagonist has no concept of what's going on or what's at stake, then there's no real tension or drama. Without that, there's no story. So the conclusion is that there isn't one. And forget just being an access character. You know, typically your access character in sci-fi is dumb. And then everyone has to explain everything to him, and that's your typical access character. But leaving that aside, like, who would you say is the person who arises at the beginning of the film and goes all the way through to the end and has, a, like, a coherent story arc? And there really isn't one. Yeah, when, I have to check that out. Uh, watch them if it, you can see them uh, in the movie section of our forum. You can see them, but also. I'm sure you could just YouTube it, just look for Phantom Menace review, but this guy is hilarious. He spent a lot of time. That's a lot of dedication. <laughs> he did. That's what we were talking about that a little bit before we started recording the show, but that's like he did a movie about the Phantom Menace, like seven, ten-minute segments. Is is That's movie length to talk about what was wrong with the Phantom Menace. And not just to like bitch and piss and moan, but like it's funny and it's it's very coherent as to the points that he's making. Well, but, just about the protagonist. I mean, he's making valid points. Yeah. Well, that's why that really hit me because you know I've been a critic of that film anyway, but that by itself really says something because you're like that's basic story structure. Is you have to have a character who begins with the story and ends with the story, and we follow the story through their eyes. And you don't have that in the Phantom Menace. Go through some of your 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 favorite villains. Oh yeah, uh, I think as far as villains go, I mean we've already touched on Freddy Krueger and Dracula. Um, I really like the Joker. The Joker is Joker's a good Batman villain, that's for sure. Yeah, but I mean uh, he's just hell bent on. <laughs> Destroying everything. Well, pure and, chaos. Like in Dark Knight, they really represented that well, where Batman is trying to bring order to a chaotic world, and, and Joker is definitely antithesis of that, because he's just pure chaos. I'm glad talk, that they had Heath Ledger in that movie, because that really brought that home. Oh, he, he amped up you know, that role so much. It was so awesome. It's the first time where people really worked to make the Joker scary, and he was in that movie. We talked about Timothy Oliphant earlier, but I think, besides him, I think any of the diehard villains, you know, Hans Gruber, Simon Gruber, uh, Colonel Stewart from the second one. I like William Sadler a lot. He, he plays good villains. Yeah, he gets those roles a lot, too. Because he, he has such a distinct face. Like, you notice the good-looking guys are always getting cast as heroes, but you, if, if you have the, these really distinct, rigid features, then you end up playing villains. It's sort of like David Morse is always playing villains, you know. He's a good enough guy. He's a good actor. But he has a sort of sinister-looking face. I liked him in The Long Kiss Goodnight. He was really good in that. He played, yeah. was it the guy that Gina Davis, he was like her target? And then he turned, he turned out to be a... part of the terrorist operation? 
I remember that back when Gina Davis was married to Rennie Harlan, she was making all these action movies. That and Cutthroat Island, they kept trying to make her into an action hero. I didn't realize she was married to him. She was for a stint. And that's when she kept doing those. And both of those movies were directed by him, I think. Um, Another villain, I mean, I was going to put aliens on here, but I, I see them more as animals. But I think Predator, Predator, you know, they come to Earth to hunt. They're pretty much that's all they're there for. Predator is a neat. I would still categorize Predator as a monster just because they don't speak. Like even though they obviously reason, I think they're still represented as monsters. But they're definitely. I always found them more fun than the aliens. Because of that, there was there was an element where they're they're reasoning. Like they are here to hunt, and they do have rules, and they do follow them. And there, there's something that makes them a little scarier. In that, you know, they have the capacity to be civilized, but they're still doing this, you know, whereas the the aliens are definitely just animals. Well, have you ever seen the abominable Dr. Fibes? The old Vincent Price Mm -hmm. back in the day. That's I mean, it's a campy movie. That's one of my favorite villains just because, I mean, (laughs) he feels victimized, but he's obviously, uh, you know, he's obviously not a victim in this movie. He's (laughs) going out of his way to kill people through these seven different seven different plagues but. i always like the cinnabites from the first they're, they're, they sort of lose their power in the other movies but the very first hellraiser i always liked the cinnabites in that one you consider them villains in the first hellraiser you know it could it's up in the air but that's what i think they're definitely in a in a sense antagonists because they're pitted against uh, kirsty who is the hero in the movie but what makes them interesting is that it's not clear-cut that they're villainous because they believe that what they're doing is for the better of the people they're doing it for. They're missionaries. They believe that by torturing you, you will learn the pleasure of pain, and therefore they're doing good by torturing you. Like, so there's something really interesting to them as layered sort of characters. One of these people like Frank Cotton that end up opening the lament configuration, you know. Yeah, he's a villain. Yeah, he's he's a horrible person to begin he's with. He's a bad guy. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I definitely think they they definitely, I think once you're involved with them, they definitely become villains. And they mistook Kirsty for being, uh, you know, the person who opened the box. Yeah, she keeps getting pitted up against them by circumstance, and but... And therefore, they're, 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 they're villains in that story. but And only in the first one. And then in the other movies, they, they, they're ruined in every other Hellraiser movie. They never get that. But that weird ambiguity that the, the, the Cenobites, you know, and the word Cenobite means priest. The Cenobites believe that, that they're doing you some good. And so they're they're this weird, you know, ridiculously overplayed example of you know this metaphor for for religious fanatics because that's what they really are. Well, they have but, no recollection of what life was like or anything like that. They're just, you know, they basically see it from you know one point of view. Yeah, in the first movie, we have no inkling that there may they may have ever been human. It's in the second movie that they start developing this idea that they were once human and all this kind of stuff, and they start losing what makes them interesting. But they're just sort of these weird demons from another dimension, like coming through the walls. Like when she 
when when that box first comes open, the very first Hellraiser and the gong goes off and they start coming through the walls, you're like, oh crap! <laughs> like you know that they're the last thing you'd ever want to see. But that makes them interesting because there's no real bargaining with them, even though she's always finding some way to to make a deal with the Cenobites. There's because they're not really after anything. Have you seen any any of the uh, later films? I think I've seen them all. I remember when they started making the direct to DVD sequels. Like I got excited and I watched them. And actually, the fifth one that they made with Craig Sheffer in it, where he's like a detective. Mm-hmm. Who sort of does it? That that to me is the best of those because it was a very simple story. Was that about the one with his descent to hell? No, that was the. I think the the one with Kersey was the last one I saw. Was part six. And that one's not that bad either. But they did one with him called Inferno. That, yeah, that was, was really, the fifth one. And that was that like was a Law and Order decent. episode with uh, Cenobites in it. <laughs> yeah, and it hardly had them in it, which is what made it most like the first one, you know, they didn't break out the Cenobites for no reason. And then they did one... Lord. They did one with her in it, with Kirsty came back. And that was a little half and half because it wasn't a bad story, but it wasn't... They, it was about halfway through that they decided to make the character Kirsty. And brought that actress in, <laughs> so it's a little it's a little flimsy as to that being her character, but it's kind of cool because you know it, the story plays out okay. Well, I like how they ended that one. How she she still in the end made a deal with him. Yeah, <laughs> and that is pretty. That's pretty consistent with Kirsty. But and then they had an episode with they had one with Kari Wur. That was the uh, I think that was the eighth the one debtor. or seventh one. And then the I next one was, was Lance Henriksen. Yeah, that was bad. That was horrible. By the time they got to him, they kept making them to the point where they just became traditional direct-to-DVD horror movies with those, with those you know, classic characters. But they weren't anything to do. At least the the first two direct-to-DVD ones, you could tell they were trying to make them sort of Hellraiser kind of stories. And then the one with Kari Wurr and the one with Lance Henriksen were just generic B-movies that they brought Cenobites into. Well, I think uh, Doug Bradley only shot for like one day on each of those movies because they couldn't <laughs> afford them. Well, that makes sense because they just need him for the box cover. Yeah, and Doug I mean, Bradley started putting on weight, so he started looking a little bigger <laughs> in that's, every movie. That's pretty funny when they can't afford the pretty much the actor who gave those movies life. Well, especially they can't afford him, even though he's not doing anything else. It's like, you could afford Lance Henriksen, but you can't afford Doug Bradley? What the hell? Lance Henriksen is, is you know, what's going on with him? He's awesome. Yeah, he's, he he's still he doing He needs a higher price tag. Well, he just did a Pumpkinhead movie, what, like a year ago, I think. Oh, God. Pumpkinhead is another sad series where the first one was awesome, and then they've just been chugging out these terrible sequels a lot of those movies do that like um the howling i mean that first one was awesome and then after that they just they were all i mean three i, was, I think it was part three was pretty good the marsupials <laughs> yeah some of the howling movies have been fun i remember part six was fun where they brought out the freaks where he is teaming up with the alligator boy i haven't seen that one. <laughs> oh, that's awesome no in in part six there's a werewolf who ends up in a circus of freaks. So there's an alligator boy and it's run by a vampire 
and he ends up fighting the vampire. So that's one of the original werewolf versus vampire movies. <laughs> you know, before all this, you know, white wolf role playing game stuff came along, and now everything is weird. That sounds almost like a Frank Henenlotter movie. Yeah, so out. So, Henenlotter made the with the basket case. Yeah, and he has Those, the, he has a new one out too. I hear is really just off the wall. Oh really? Yeah, I can't think of the name of it, but it, it's I don't I think it's been released in the independent market for about a year, and it's getting an official DVD release this year, like in the I think in February. It's called Bad Biology. The Basket Case movies, especially the third one, they were just, <laughs> they were so yeah, the, absurd. The third one's pretty out of control. Now, the first Basket Case movie is pretty awesome, and it's pretty messed up, too. Like, they're never not. But the second one always reminded me of Nightbreed, where they had to hook up with this whole community of weirdos. <laughs> but, the, was it like a halfway house? Yeah. Nightbreed is another underrated movie, though. I've always thought Nightbreed was really cool. And that's one of those movies that it, it is underrated, and and I wish they would, I wish they would restore it because apparently there's about seventy minutes of footage that was cut from the movie. No way. Yeah, and yeah, uh, I would love to see a director's cut of that. I loved Nightbreed. That well, was one have, of my favorite movies. They have a petition online you can sign, but uh, they said the studio, I guess it's Warner Brothers that owns it. Has no in, they have no intention of releasing it. I don't understand that. Well, they said there's no market for it. Well, if there's an online petition, there's some market for it. Well, I mean, it's like the Nightmare on Elm Street TV series. They released the first season in the UK, and because it it was you know selling really badly over there, they scrapped the second season. And well, so maybe, maybe that's not the market over the UK. Now, I'll give them this. That Nightmare on Elm Street TV series was pretty crappy. Oh, it was horrible. Well, I remember in high school, that was like my favorite show because it had Freddy in it, but it was awful. I think somewhere in my video collection, I have the episode that actually was The Trial of Freddy. Oh, yeah, the first one. I think I have that on VHS. That was directed by Toby Hooper. Yeah, but it was not good. (laughs) No. Oh, and, and it got even worse. I mean, there was an episode where there was a mime that was basically Freddy is a mime. He was, <laughs> you know, he would That's pantomime awful. that he was stabbing someone with his hand and then the person would die. That was back in the days of, like, you know, really cheap and cheesy syndicated movies. Freddy's Nightmares was not a very high-budget TV show. Well, they also had the Friday the 13th show. Yeah, but that had nothing. To do. That was just name only. That was in its way even worse because at least they had Robert England hosting Freddy's Nightmares. Yeah, that uh, the Friday Thirteenth wasn't that just Freddy's... like a supernatural type show? Yeah, it was just one of those. It's one of a million shows that are out right now. It was just like the supernatural weird thing of the week, and in that show, it was just you know they had a pawn shop full of haunted objects that they had to retrieve. It's basically, there's a show out like that right now called uh, Warehouse 13 on Sci-Fi. Same concept. Yeah, I've seen pieces of that. It's a really fun show to be, you know, a sort of, not a very inspired concept, but but it's got a lot of good writing and it's a lot of fun. But it's definitely a good show to watch as a procedural weird thing of the week. I think on the subject of Supernatural, I think that show, I mean, 
Sam and Dean Winchester, they're pretty pretty decent heroes just for the fact that they're traveling across the country and exercising demons, killing vampires. Well, and they, they, they do have heroic qualities because they sacrifice everything. They have no lives to do this. Like, there's no... It's a thankless existence. I think they have a heroic quality because, you know, as brothers, they stick together, too. I really... Plus, I really like the writing. I think that show inherited a lot of the, the Whedon regulars from, like, Buffy and Angel, those great writers. I can you know, see that. It has that feel of, like, I used to be a big fan of Buffy and Angel and those Just Whedon shows, and it has that kind of feel, that fun, let's go kill a monster every week kind of show. Would and you... it's got Ben Edlund, who worked on Firefly and Angel, but also that's the guy who created The Tick. I love that show. So you can see there's every now and then they do a lot of really fun tongue in cheek stuff. Oh yeah, that's that's what keeps that show, you know, kind of fresh. Is mm-hmm. the fact that they they do have fun with it. And they they keep upping the ante. I don't know what they're going to do. Like they're fighting Satan this <laughs> year. <laughs> I don't know what happens, but oh. I do appreciate how they keep like like Buffy never went this far. Buffy fought Dracula. That's as high up as she got. I'm pretty sure after you fight the devil, you have to end the show. Yeah, I don't know what pantheon you're going to take on. So hopefully that's their plan, that their end game for, for the series finale is them fighting Satan. <laughs> yeah. uh, what about, what would you think about uh, Dexter Morgan as a hero from the show Dexter? I mean, even though he's kind of, it's kind of like two wrongs making a right kind of thing. I think Dexter is one of the most interesting concepts for a character and a show that I've ever seen because of that. You know, this idea that that he is sort of ingrained biologically with this need to kill, but then he has this overwhelming, it's sort of a nature versus nurture, like to the extreme, where he's been conditioned with this morality where he has rules that he will not break for how he kills. Where, and you can see how it, it's interesting the ethics that they put Dexter in where he's at odds with the world where people it seems like he has more of a moral compass than a lot of the normal people that he meets but he's killing people in <laughs> but he's spare a serial time. killer it's a brilliant show it, because not just because it creates an ambiguity of morality for a serial killer but it also makes him relatable because he's sort of this ultimate outsider that people people relate to. Like, well, everyone has those those thoughts in their head where you're standing in a room full of people and you just don't feel like you fit in. But he's the extreme because he's a serial killer. So it's like at one point you feel like you want to relate to him, but at the other point he's reprehensible to you. Well, yeah, because of the need to kill. I mean, he's killing bad people, but... You kind of think, you know, I always think when I watch that show, if he wasn't killing these people, if he wasn't taught to kill these people, he'd be out murdering innocent people. He would be killing innocent people, yeah. So it's a real interesting concept. That, But then we're all sort of the product of how we were taught, and so is he. So you wonder, you know, is there, I mean, the, the show makes you it, it sort of calls into question do people have an underlying nature that is outside of what they're taught you know is Dexter I mean is Dexter good because he was taught to be good or well, or is he like just you were saying, the product of his environment you know 
Well, that goes along with what you were saying about, uh, you know, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, you know, kind of leaving his monster right after he creates him. You know, he wasn't taught anything, so he pretty much goes on a rampage and kills people. Yeah, and there is a there is a moral element to that too, though, because there is a point where the monster understands that what he's doing is reprehensible, and he does it anyway. So there is a moral turning point for the monster too. But at the same time, you do sort of feel for him that he didn't have very many opportunities. And even you know, even when he's confronted with Doctor Frankenstein, there's even <laughs> they never do this in any of the adaptations of the of the book. But but in the book, it's it's very gruesome. Where he Frankenstein actually gets to the point where he's creating a mate for the monster to the point where the monster is like coming up to see it, like all excited, <laughs> and then he just tears it up in front of him. Because he realizes that he doesn't want a world of, of these kind of monsters. And that's really the point where the monster is is unstoppable in how awful it is. Because even, even he is like, just give me one thing in this world to love and I will leave you alone forever. And Dr. Frankenstein can't even do that. <laughs> just a <laughs> jerk. <laughs> But but you do see there are moments where even the monster is has the ability to choose and chooses poorly. But then I would say Doctor Frankenstein is worse because he has every every capacity and every facility. He he's given every opportunity to make the right decisions and he just doesn't. And that he is different from the monster in that respect. Is that he actually has that, you know, that decision. <laughs> To yeah, make he, it. And he doesn't and, <laughs> he doesn't take that responsibility. And he was given a safe place to make it. Like I could see, you know, you're born a monster. It's very difficult for people to even accept you and you know, you weren't taught right from wrong, so even by the time you learn it, it's almost too late. But but Frankenstein was born in splendor. <laughs> he had a loving family, he had like a hot girl wanting to marry him. It's like you know, forget it, man. If you if you can't deal with if if you can't accept that, then then there's no helping you. Though the monster had a lot of disadvantages that you don't have. This is kind of a corny villain, but what about Beetlejuice? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Beetlejuice as a villain. <laughs> he's he's kind of soft as a villain because he's pretty easy to beat and he doesn't really do anything. I guess it's it's fair to call him antagonistic <laughs> but aside from just being lecherous towards the underage girl which is pretty bad he doesn't really he's, he doesn't really accomplish anything particularly evil no I don't even really know that he sets out to <laughs> he's yeah. just a lot of gags he's, yeah, he's like Mr. Mixelplake he's like a he's like a mischievous figure <laughs> where you definitely wouldn't want him around but I'm not sure I'd call him a villain He's pretty easy to, to foil. This is going back uh, into comics and cartoons, but what about the Shredder from the Ninja Turtles? Shredder. Well, this man, he has this huge Technodrome, and then he has, you know, mousers, you know, hundreds of mousers that just get destroyed every day. You would think that instead of hunting these turtles that he would do something 
productive with his life. Well, in the you're talking about the cartoon Shredder, well, where he did have more. Like in the original comic, the Shredder didn't have quite as many amenities as the cartoon one did. Like no, they went overboard with it. In the comic book, like the Shredder was just basically like a ninja, and he had a ninja clan, and they fought the Ninja Turtles. But then when they did the cartoon, they had all these robots and all this stuff. But I would say even so, like, the the Shredder seems to have a classic villain flaw where your goal is to, to defeat the hero. Like, you don't have an external goal. Like, if you did defeat the hero, there wouldn't be, like, a step two. Like, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. You're defined by your, by your nemesis. Whereas heroes, their goal is always just to keep, you know, keep the world safe. So they have a goal, like if in the absence of the villain, the hero can actually feel accomplished because that's all he wanted. He wants the absence of the villain. But when you have like a nemesis like the Shredder who's like, I guess, out for revenge or whatever (laughs) against the Ninja Turtles, then he's sort of consumed by, it's like, if you were to accomplish this goal, you would negate your own purpose. Because if you rid yourself of the Ninja Turtles, then what would you do? Who are you without them? It's an empty existence. (laughs) And then, you know, they're villains. They have, like, hundreds of them. And I don't know. I think in the cartoon it went, it did, it went a little overboard with it. And they made him silly. Whereas the comic book, he was a violent, violent man. Oh, yeah, the comics, the the comics were pretty, were pretty brutal. Like, they were pretty violent. I remember I was, like, 15 years old when, when I discovered the Ninja Turtles. So I was, like, right at the age that that comic was written for. And I thought that comic was awesome. And then by the time I was older, when the cartoon came out, and it was targeted at people who were younger than than the comic audience. So I remember not liking that cartoon as much. Well, it's kind, of like, it's kind of like they did with Tales from the Crypt, how they had a cartoon and they made it... You know, kid friendly tales from the Crypt Keeper. Whereas the yeah, the show how, the show how, was how like, how do you do that? Like, how do you make kid versions of things that are totally inappropriate for kids without encouraging kids to watch that stuff? You know, that's all wrong. That's what cracks me up about the '80s is there's so many of them. I mean, they had so many Freddy toys, and they had you know the Tales from the Crypt cartoon, and they were they were targeting this stuff at kids heavily. You know, yeah, and you have to know that that's encouraging kids to go watch those movies that aren't appropriate. You know, I remember Freddy stuff when I was a kid, and I have, uh, I have some of those like Freddy toys somewhere. You know, where they were banned because people were getting mad that they were making toys targeted like to kids that were from R-rated movies. But I remember even stuff like RoboCop. Well, that's an R-rated movie. And yet, there's action figures. So oh, that was a huge toy line. Yeah, I mean, how would kids not watch RoboCop? You know. Well, there were Terminator toys, toys also. Yeah. And you really have to start wondering about that kind of stuff. Man, I know I have some Terminator toys. We did our, like, well, we'll talk about it. We went our expedition to find my old toys. We found a bunch of them. I won't reveal what we did and didn't find. I won't ruin the video for people. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be cool. Yeah, hopefully we'll have that out soon enough when I get some time to do some editing. You know who's a good villain, too? You know, obviously besides Darth Vader, who's clearly a good villain. But but 
Star Trek had Khan oh. back in the movie days. And he was another one like the Shredder where he was just, his whole goal was revenge. So, you know, it was a waste of, of an intellect. But Rathacon was cool because the Khan was designed to be an Ahab, you know, like it, it was, it was, became a morality play on the, on the futility of revenge. But I think all Star Trek movies have suffered in the absence of Khan because he was such a cool villain in that movie that they've always tried, even in the new Star Trek movie, they try to make someone who's like a Khan, but it just isn't one. And they kind of jump the shark. Yeah, totally. <laughs> even in the new Star Trek movie, which I really like, I mean, that new villain is just like over the top ridiculous. But he, they had that. That was their, you know, another great villain is the Kurgan from Highlander, and he did the same thing. A really great villain can ruin a franchise, because you know, no one, you can't top a really great villain. Like I remember, you know, Kurgan was such a cool villain in the first Highlander that every other Highlander movie had a villain trying to act like that same guy. And you know, you just. First of all, you know, Clancy Brown is not easily imitated. He's he's a he's a great villain anyway. He's a, just a great actor. And second, maybe not everybody uh Highlander fights has to be like some big weird punked out barbarian guy. Like maybe well, I mean, he could have sophisticated villains. The fans are going to always compare the, the you know the future villains to that original one anyway. And I think it doesn't help when they're trying to act like them. Yeah, it makes it way worse. Like, I remember when Highlander 3 was coming out, and they said it was going to be like a sorcerer, and I was like, oh, cool. That's a different kind of villain, you know? That's going to be cool. And he's like a wizard and stuff. That'll be a cool movie. And then they bring in Mario Van Peebles doing a Kurgan impression. <laughs> like, and that was embarrassing, that whole movie. Every every Highlander sequel is embarrassing. But Yeah, that should have been a one-shot deal. It was designed to be. They wrapped it up with a bow. There are a lot of movies that they just really shouldn't have went on. Yeah, some movies are showstoppers. Some movies, it's it's like they made it, you know, with the dare. It's like I I I dare you make a sequel. That's where Highlander twos come from, where they're like, oh, we'll do it. <laughs> and they just all out. <laughs> you know, it's the future, and there's a dome over the earth to protect us from the ozone layer, and then there's more mortals from another planet. So there, so they're not all gone. Like, okay, whoa. <laughs> okay, I take back the dare. Although I respect your moxie, if you're going to make a, a sequel, then then just go all out. So Highlander Two is definitely the most entertaining of all the Highlander sequels. The others are unwatchable, but at least that one is like, what are they doing? Shogunri's back, really? And they get Michael Ironside as the bad guy. They get all kinds of good things going on in that movie. Well, I don't understand. You know, I've heard recently they're doing a Cloverfield 2 and a uh, Paranormal Activity 2. I don't know how they're going to follow those kind of movies up. I don't know how they're going to do Paranormal Activity 2, but that's like Blair Witch. Blair Witch was so big they decided to make a Blair Witch 2, and it was a big fat bomb because it was stupid. Well, and there was no there was no need for it. There's nowhere to go. What they should have done, which was actually a pretty cool idea, that they had they just wanted to do it as a Blair Witch 3, which was a bad idea was they were going to do a prequel kind of movie that was the backstory of the witch. You know, and there was a story there. But instead, the studio thought that they could just kind of crank out a, a two that was just like one, basically. 
and it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly I've uh, only seen pieces of Book of Shadows. No, it's terrible. It it's looked not good. it looked awful. <laughs> yeah, it's a typical studio sequel. So I don't know how you would do Paranormal Activity 2 without it being a Book of Shadows, you know? Well, unless it's just another incident altogether. <laughs> yeah, unless it's house. just the same concept. But then, you know, it, then it loses the... What made the the first one cool is just like what made Blair Witch cool is you really didn't know what you are going into. And it had this interesting kind of documentary sort of feel because it's all just shot on video with unknown actors. And you, there's a lot of credibility I just don't see them capturing that again. And they probably won't. What do you think about Cloverfield 2? I don't know. I guess I could see that. I wonder if they're going to keep up the POV element. Because I don't see where you'd have any credibility. If they did a Cloverfield 2 and it was just something totally different, maybe. But okay, an, an actual Godzilla movie? Yeah, maybe. But trying to recapture that same element like it happened again and there was somebody else running around with a camera uh, that's hard Cloverfield just happened to be done so well that I bought into that Blair Witch style of filming but I don't know that you could do Cloverfield 2 and have it be another POV movie maybe you've established the story that you could just do a straight up monster movie and not try to capture that same concept again. I just read this morning that uh, they're doing a Rambo 5. That he's... <laughs> what do you think of him as a hero? <laughs> uh, Rambo is what a lot of people like to call an anti-hero. And I don't like that use of the term. Whereas like, he's a protagonist who is not particularly heroic. In as a as a traditional, what I think of when I think of anti-hero in a more literary sense is I think of people who lack heroic abilities altogether. Protagonists, like, not that I like Woody Allen movies, but like those kinds of protagonists where they're anti-heroes, where they lack the capacity to be heroic, but they're still the protagonist of the film you're watching. They're everyman kind of characters. But it seems like in movies lately, when they use the term anti-hero, they mean like a guy who's not clean cut, but he's still a badass, like a Vin Diesel anti-hero. <laughs> and that's what Rambo is. But, oh man, I don't know. I didn't like that Rambo 4 at all. See, actually, um, I think outside of the first three films, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, it was it was, it was was really over the top, but you know, I figured... The- he it's was in the sixties. <laughs> it's the it's the there's there's a subtle like like a, there's a subtle racism to the movie. There's a subtle cultural bias to the movie where he's in Burma and everything is bad all the time. And you know there's like there's a complete like genocide, rape, everything like every it, it, it's complete pandemonium until like this white blonde girl gets kidnapped and he's like uh, I can't have them raping her. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he kills everybody in Burma to he save. <laughs> and somehow, for no reason, she her virtue is still intact when he finds her. But literally, like the 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 head of the the camp is like luring a young boy into his cabin, and Rambo's watching in his binoculars, going, "Oh, that sucks." Wait, where's the white girl? <laughs> like he totally doesn't do anything about that. 
It's like the only thing he cares about is the white woman. Well, I so, think the new one is kind of the same plot. I mean, I think it's someone gets like an heiress or someone gets cat. Uh, she gets kidnapped and taken to Mexico for some reason. So he's just protecting the virtue of all white women against the, the touch of dark skinned people. <laughs> I'm not sure that I like that as the direction of the Rambo franchise. Well, he's in the 60s. Maybe he's becoming a little bit senile. Because he's writing and directing these movies. Well, he's got I mean, he's got something because people are watching him. He's making money. And I liked that new Rocky pretty good. But yeah, that was pretty sure. good. I'm not sure about the, the Rambos. Well, I didn't even think that last one made enough money to, uh, you know, to constitute making another Rambo movie. Apparently people like these Rambo movies. So good for him, I guess. I'm not sure I would. And now, when in 1985, when I was a kid, Rambo was my hero, <laughs> <laughs> and I loved First Blood. The novel was one of my favorite books ever, and I still think that that book is a good book. Before the movies, actually, if you watch the First Blood, the the First Blood film, which is not quite as gruesome as the book it still holds something as a movie by itself before the whole Rambo thing took off. Because First Blood was actually trying to make a point. And in fact, in the book, he just, he dies at the end of the book. Does <laughs> like, he really? doesn't even live. <laughs> like, Is he killed by the uh, Portland authorities? Well, he and the sheriff, I mean, it's a whole, like, squaring off of him and that sheriff, and in the end, they end up killing each other. Like, neither one of them lived past the end of that book. I need to read that. It's a pretty good book. I mean, speaking like it's been like twenty years since I read it, but <laughs> but I remember when I was in junior high, I thought it was pretty awesome. You know who's a hero I've always liked, and I mean, I use the term hero kind of loosely, but Axel Foley. Axel <laughs> Foley. <laughs> I would love a Beverly Hills Cop four. You know, they keep talking about it, but it, hopefully, I don't know. There's a lot of Beverly Hills Cop 3 was not good. That was and, terrible. And Eddie Murphy may not be able to be good in things anymore. I don't know. Well, he's I think he's owned by Disney now. <laughs> so I'm not sure he can actually do a, an R-rated movie anymore. Well, when you get caught, it, it's one of those things. When they catch you and you're, you're in a cab with a transsexual hooker, <laughs> next thing you know, it's the clumps. You got to make like eight clump movies in Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> You're not allowed to say the F word in movies ever again. Pluto Nash. Pluto Nash, that's right. Did you ever see you, that? Yes, I saw it. it oh my god, it's horrible. Didn't it have Randy Quaid in it? Randy Quaid is the android in it. Yeah. Uh, I remember oh. very little about that movie, <laughs> which is probably for the best. Well, let me see. I think my, my hero, my all time hero, is still Kermit the Frog. Kermit's awesome. I think that's uh, that's an enduring hero. He has all the he has all the great heroic qualities, but I think that's because he's a, a direct extension of of Jim Henson. Oh, Jim Henson was awesome. But if you watch uh, the Muppet movie, I mean, that's like everything you need to know. You know, I I'm really glad the Muppets are coming back and that they're making another movie because it just doesn't seem like kids even know what they are today. 
Oh, Disney ruined the Muppets. Disney got the Muppets and they started making, like, you know, the Christmas Carol and the Treasure Island. Didn't and they do uh, they Wizard, made of Oz? Wizard of Oz? You know, that's not cool. When they did Muppets in Space, that was pretty good because it was an original Muppet movie, even though mostly the Muppets haven't been cool since Jim Henson died. But yeah. Muppets in Space was okay, you know? I'd watch stuff like that. Well, I think Brian Henson has a good heart. I just don't think he has... I think he lacks something that his dad had. Well, yeah, he's not a visionary. He can do the voices. That doesn't make him a visionary. <laughs> but Have you heard about the new movie? No. What 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 is the new movie about? There is actually, they're talking about a theatrical release. It's written by Jason Siegel and the other dude from How I Met Your Mother. Oh, really? And, yeah, and they said um, at test screenings that it's gotten a really good reaction. I mean, it has celebrities like Rachel Ray in it, cooking with the Swedish chef, and they have all sorts of cameos. Well, just like the old movies. Oh, but, I'd love that. I yeah, miss the Muppets so much. Well, I can't think of the guy's name, but the dark-haired guy from How I Met Your Mother, apparently he he contacted the Hensons and asked them if he came to them with a good treatment for a movie, if he could, you know, write it. And they were they said after he wrote it, they were sold on it. How awesome. Well, that, that's exciting to me. Yeah, I think the world needs Muppets now more than ever. Oh, yeah. I mean, kids, I mean, the stuff kids watch nowadays, I mean, and maybe it's, maybe it's because I'm older, but it's just such nonsense. I mean, yeah, it's all Japanese crap. The Muppets, I don't know, we're always fun. Well, I'd heard... Good values. Someone told me that Sesame Street's about to end. Oh, really? I mean, that's that weird. That might be a rumor, but I mean, that's been around it's, forever. Is it because of the Cookie Monster? They've been down on the Cookie Monster forever. He's eating vegetables now. Is he eating vegetables now? Well, they're calling him the sometimes Cookie Monster because he's trying to teach kids that you can't always have sweets. Oh, God. When See, I was a kid, he didn't care. That's why Sesame Street is ending. <laughs> well, kids, you know, kids aren't necessarily smart, but they're definitely not stupid. Right, just because the cookie monster is eating cookies all the time doesn't mean that kids think it's okay to eat cookies all the time. It's just representing the fact that kids probably do want to eat cookies all the time. <laughs> I mean, that can be a complete rumor, too. I mean, I, someone had told me that the show was ending, so hopefully they're wrong. Yeah, well, it's sad. I mean, it's run its course, I guess, you know, and, and in the absence of Jim Henson, it is hard. But what an institution. Sesame Street. What, like the Muppets, you know, those are icons. Next, they're going to tell me that Bob Ross is going to stop painting. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> painting happy little trees. Yeah. No, I love Kermit. I love Kermit. I love Captain Kirk. I love Han Solo. I love Sam Beckett from the Quantum Leap show. Oh, yeah. He's a good one because he's a MacGyver kind of character. I like where, you know, the 80s was really good about coming up with TV heroes who were, like, really smart but also knew karate for no reason. <laughs> that Sam Beckett was like that. So it's worked in a reason for them to use it? I think Yoda is a hero of mine, too, because he's also a Muppet, so that makes sense. Well, he was the best part of episode two. Well, he was the apology, like, he was the reason you could watch the prequels. I mean, he was hardly in episode one, but, you know, seeing him, like, have a sword fight in episode two made it worthwhile. I think the Ghostbusters are cool. Oh, yeah, the Ghostbusters are awesome. They're good heroes. 
I was watching that the other day and, and thinking about that, you know, and that was the quality of the 80s that you don't see much since is how they could create franchises where they invented new heroes like like the Ghostbusters became iconic heroes. Like Indiana Jones was an iconic hero, you know, like the 80s was so full of these these iconic heroes. And now these days we don't have that many new iconic heroes being created, but that we're remaking all of the old ones. I can't really think of many. I mean, I mean, in the '80s we had people like Snake Plissken, and yeah, I mean you had these. They were really unique characters too. And even like Freddy is an iconic villain. Like, oh, there what? were tons of uh, villains in the '80s. I mean, that's where you had Skeletor and just tons of them. Hey, man, yeah, GI Joe. All of those became big in the 80s. The Transformers, why? That's what we should really be addressing. It's like, where did we lose our ability to create icons? I think there's it's, just a lack of effort. It's Examining the zeitgeist, you have to wonder, and, and I really, this may have to do with, with uh, the nuclear age, where... You know, in the 80s, it looks, when you're looking back, like it was just a wonderful time. But really, everyone was afraid that there was going to be nuclear war all the time. Like, people who didn't grow up in that time period don't even understand that for people, like, especially young people growing up in that time, it seemed very likely that nuclear war could happen. And so, in the media of the time and the entertainment of the time, they were creating these icons and these heroes and these legends because that's what people had to have. And now, really, you know, the war on terror and all that stuff, people might be afraid of terrorism, but it's not tangible in the same way. So we're not we're not afraid of, of that like, like we were. And what's funny is because of that, you know, you see a lot more of their of darker elements being represented in our pop culture and our entertainment. Like we're not icon building and we're not building heroes anymore. We're actually creating movies about torture and rape and a lot of post Armageddon. There are more post apocalypse movies now than there were in the eighties and the eighties were the ones that started it. But there are more Mad Maxes in the movies that we make today than there were in the eighties. Somehow, we, I think we're losing our ability to believe in heroes, maybe. I can't. I can't even remember the last time we had a really good hero. Yeah, a really good hero. I don't know. I mean, someone yeah. that's actually lasted past a few movies. I mean, like there are the icon. pitch black movies, but nothing. I mean, he's not iconic. Mm-mm, he won't last. Like when you think, sure, yeah. There's always big franchises. Like you look at all the big movies. Like the top ten movies right now are what? Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. And Avatar and all this. Like, are any of these characters going to endure as being iconic? In the same way that Han Solo or Captain Kirk? I guess rehashing a lot of the old characters and the old ideas is the only way they know how to keep them going. I think there's an interesting sociology that that could be studied there that... What is it that makes us better able? Because it, it's cyclical. It happens. Like in the 80s, all these icons were created. And now we don't seem able to create new icons at all. Like what is it that happens in the popular culture or in, in, the, cultural, in the culture in general that makes us better able to create icons, to create 
enduring legends. And looking at my list, I would say 90% of it her people from the 80s. Yeah, and the rest of them are, are characters that are not icons. Like I see I got Malcolm Reynolds on my list. He's not iconic. He's a cult figure. Like Ash is a cult figure. Mm-hmm. You know, but he's not He's not Han Solo. He's not Captain Kirk. Like there will always be a Captain Kirk now. I don't understand. You know, there will always be a Kermit the Frog. What are we creating now? That, you know, that'll last. Maybe it's just a matter. Maybe we don't realize it while it's happening. Maybe 20 years from now, they'll be pulling all kinds of things from, from right now. But I can't think of anything right now that I consider will be enduring. That they can make another Indiana Jones movie. Then it's like 30 years later. <laughs> but we can't create with the same creative people. Cannot create a new Indiana Jones, a new iconic character. You can't get George Lucas and Steven Spielberg together to create a new hero, but they can go ahead and make another Indiana Jones. Well, it makes me wonder if, you know, they're going to look back and see people like Harry Potter as, you know, like our generation's Han Solo kind of thing. And maybe. I've actually, you know, I've entertained that because I'm not a big, you know, I watch the movies, but I'm not big into the Harry Potter. But maybe that's what it is. Maybe Harry Potter is the new Star Wars, you know, and that's like, these kids growing up on Harry Potter, you know, in 20 years, they're going to look back with that nostalgia and they'll be like, how come they don't make them like that anymore? How come they don't make any more Harry Potters? When you said pirates, I mean, pirates, I mean, Jack Sparrow could easily Ugh. be, I mean, I those, hope Harry Potter lives longer than Jack Sparrow. You know, I really wish that the second and the third pirates movies never happened because they, <laughs> they really brought that down because that, that first movie was so great. They made an embarrassment of pirate movies. Well, I had a hard time even following the third movie because there were like 17 storylines going on. The first I mean, one was okay, but I never liked it as much as other people. The second one I liked better than other people because it was a bunch of mindless action, and I was like, well, that was pretty good. The third one is incomprehensible, I think, to pretty much everybody. <laughs> well, it's kind of like and, the Saw movies, too. I mean... Go ask a Saw fan the story, like ask him to basically give you the outline of the story. It keeps backtracking. <laughs> they can't give you an honest, like, you know, this is what happens story. Well, come on, that guy died in episode two, and they've made like six. So <laughs> how it, many, how many like videotapes did he leave behind, or how many flashbacks can you do? Well, have you seen that they're slated for nine movies? Oh, Lord. So we we have three more years of this stuff. Oh, I don't blame them for cranking saws out because they're easy and they sell. But why is that the only enduring horror franchise, you know? Well, it doesn't make sense. You resurrected Friday the 13th. Why can't we have one of those every year? I'd watch it. You know, you're bringing back Nightmare on Elm Street. Are you going to make nine of those? I'd watch it. Well, they could easily keep going with, you know, the Romero zombie movies or any of that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I'm all for zombie movies. We can't see vampire movies anymore because they're all dating 16-year-olds and stuff. You know, they're not cool. <laughs> well, they're not vampires anymore either. Oh, they're not anything anymore. Oh, my God. Or they're like the Daybreakers where they're supposed to be cool, but we're supposed to believe that vampires took over the entire world. They now run the world government. There's a vampire society. And yet, somehow, they don't realize that they're running out of humans until they only have a month left of food. <laughs> well, not only that, but there's, you know, the fact that there's a group of humans who are hunting them. 
<laughs> how did that how did that escape the radar? Yeah, what is going on? Maybe maybe we should have stayed in the shadows. I mean, remember when we were saying how much things would be so much better if we took over? Well, maybe we need to admit that we should have left the humans in charge. <laughs> I'm really they interesting had, had better uh, foresight. I want to see what happens with that movie because you know, I like the last movie those guys did and I'm really hoping that this movie proves to be something pretty pretty outstanding. Now, what movie did they do last? Uh, well, the Spirit Brothers did Undead. It was a New Zealand movie, and it was it was kind I've, of. I've heard of that. People, I've heard good things about that, but I haven't seen it. I mean, it's very it's very midnight movie, very you know tongue in cheek, but it's about zombies. But it also has a you know a story of aliens too that are causing the zombies. That's awesome, actually. Oh, it, it's really <laughs> that sounds cool. Good so far. And there's that's a scene the guys where, that made Daybreakers made that. Yep. yep. And it's the uh, there's a scene where a guy's out fishing and he gets attacked by a fish, a zombie fish. That's pretty awesome. Now, see, why don't they just make a mainstream movie about aliens versus zombies? That sounds like something everybody can get behind. Well, they'd be the ones to do it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. That reminds me of that old Pete Jackson movie, Bad Taste. Oh, that was that's great. what that was, where aliens resurrected people into zombies or something. I can't really remember. You know, that seems to be a, a recurring theme in a lot of movies, is the fact that you know the, the dead rise because of something from space. I don't know why people... I do like the idea. Maybe that just goes back to our, our need to link ridiculous concepts. Like I was... <laughs> I saw this book in the store yesterday and it was ghost pictures. I was like, okay, what is it going to be like spirit balls and things like every time orbs. Yeah. Orbs. Every time a flash reflects off a piece of dust, we've got a ghost picture. So I pick it up and I'm flipping through it. And the first page I get to is the face on Mars. <laughs> and then they show the picture of that Bigfoot kind of picture on Mars where they've caught some kind of figure that looks like a Bigfoot. And I'm like, so wait a second. <laughs> So the face on Mars is a ghost? And Bigfoot's a ghost on Mars? <laughs> like, how does this... How does one have to do with the other? I'm not well, sure how that's they... How, that's how it works. Bigfoot's an alien. I don't know. I'm not sure how they made that classification. <laughs> yeah, there was a pretty loose editorial structure to this ghost picture book so far. <laughs> that's awesome. Did you pick that book up? <laughs> no. <laughs> I did not great but that is funny I like I like the idea and if you start looking up conspiracy theories you will start to see that where they just start linking everything together like 2012 man 2012 is going to be the perfect storm of just wacko ideas there's everybody is being represented I don't know what's going to happen when 2012 is over because everyone's got their eggs in that basket well and there are a lot of big names a lot of people are really getting behind this well, yeah, the Christians are in it. Everybody's in it. All of a sudden, the Book of Revelations. Oh, yeah, 2012. Oh, yeah. The Hopi. The Hopi. The Hopi Indians. Really? Yeah, they <laughs> they threw their hat into this ring. Oh, yeah. They, they saw this coming forever. Like the Mayans. It started with the Mayans, but now it's everybody. It's like, well, didn't, didn't, didn't their calendar end on that day because they ran out of room? They ran out of rock, maybe. Who knows? I mean, come on. I mean, I think people are digging a little too deep. There's a lot of holes in that concept. For one, you know, there's nothing that says that this is the last calendar they ever made. It's just the last one you know about. And second, so what if it was? Maybe they figured 5,000 years carved into rock was sufficient. 
There's all kinds of things it could have been. That are the best practical jokers ever. Like in <laughs> 5,000 years. <laughs> well, plus, that they never said it's the end either way. So there's no telling. <laughs> but I love all these people though, who are flipping out. Oh, I love apocalypses, man. I know some people don't like it. It makes my mother nervous. Talk about apocalypses, but I find it affirming. Well, then you really know who, you know, people you see in your day-to-day life, you really know who's crazy. Because <laughs> you start hearing them talk about this stuff, and you, you have a hard time understanding where they're coming from. Well, especially, it's like, are you really buying into this? It's like, I'm not, I'm a skeptic, but I'm not a non-believer. Like, I'm open to just about anything, but come on. Like, like look at what you're talking about. These specials on TV will crack you up. I was watching a special on TV where they were talking about ancient aliens and how they helped us build East Island or something. And the guy was like, with in all seriousness, like just sitting there going, "So you, be, why, why would ancient peoples just build these giant rock heads for no reason?" It's like, well, why would aliens direct ancient people to build rock heads for no reason? I'm gonna land in a spaceship and I'm gonna show a bunch of primitives how to build things out of rocks for no reason at all. That seems makes like an more elaborate sense. waste of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, who are these aliens? They're the least productive people in the universe. They come down here to show us how to build pyramids. It's like it's impossible to imagine that ancient man could have discovered geometry on his own. But it makes perfect sense that a spaceship would have landed and overseen 40 years of construction on these stone structures. <laughs> To accomplish what exactly? It's 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 easier for them to believe that than the fact that people may have been bored. Yeah. Well, I I get really annoyed with people who can't accept that that primitive man was much more sophisticated than than you would imagine at first. I mean, just because they didn't have technology doesn't mean that they didn't understand astronomy or mathematics. Because they did, the Mayans did. It was part. It was actually part of their religion. So if they accurately predicted that some planets were going to align, and they figured that was a good time to stop carving calendars, there's not necessarily anything ominous about that. Um. Well, all right. Well, we should probably wrap this up. <laughs> I think we've covered. I don't think we covered ten heroes or villains, but we've we've covered the spectrum. I think of good and bad tonight. We covered many. <laughs> we have covered the concept of heroism and villainy. A lot of them kind of fall in the same category. Yeah, and those are the more interesting ones, I think. But that's good. Without without Brooks here, I never know how to stop. So I guess I should just <laughs> we yeah. should just end. But definitely, yeah. this is this has been fun. I'm sorry there wasn't anybody else here to to greet you on this, but me. But we sh- we need to get you back so we can. Oh, I had a lot of fun. Meet Greg and some of the others. Oh yeah. So we'll have to do this again. And in the meantime, you guys need to check out Kruger Nation on YouTube. Is that the only thing, or do you have do you do you do anything else on the online, or is that um, your main hub? Right now, that's pretty much it. I have I do music, so I have a MySpace that's MySpace.com/slash Johnny Sanders, and I have a lot of my uh, you know original music, a lot of my music on there. I'll have to check that out. So if anybody wants to just check it out and listen to some songs. That's cool. We'll have to plug you on the forum. I know I plugged Cougar Nation. Man, I really appreciate that, too. I mean, that's really cool. 
Well, I like that. I, I kind of stumbled across. You gave us props on a on a, your your site, and I didn't even realize it. I kind of stumbled upon where you were telling people to listen to our show, so it's cool. We should look out. But we'll definitely have to get you back on here too, where you can meet at least Greg at some point. Oh yeah, we'll do some more. That'd be stuff. awesome. <laughs> it's nice to have another horror voice because Greg doesn't really dig on the horror. So that's <laughs> another thing too. But cool. All right, and you can also listen to our old episodes at tv8mydinner.com. You can check us out on the forum at forum.tv8mydinner.com. It's the new year. We're gonna have a lot of new episodes and and a lot of a lot of new people bring a lot and some old people back too as well. And we got our hundredth episode coming up very soon, so be on the lookout for that. But thanks, and uh, Johnny, thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, thanks. And thanks everybody for listening. We will talk to you later. This has been TV8 My Dinner. Don't forget to visit our forum at www.forum.tv8mydinner.com. Dog crazy.